Let's open in prayer. Father, thank you for the life of your son Jesus, and we pray that your Holy Spirit, who loves to teach us about you, would take us deeper and deeper into the life of your son so that we might learn more of him and walk with him and grow in him and bring glory to you for his sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In Mark chapter 11 and verse 30, Jesus says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my way is light and my burden is easy. And I don't know of a better way to learn of Christ than to study his life in detail. And over the years, I've been very blessed to be able to put together a lot of the Jewish background that goes with Jesus. You know, Jesus lived uh, after the Old Testament was completed, and three-quarters of our Bible is Old Testament. Uh, And so most everything Jesus does has an Old Testament context. And then, of course, everything Jesus does gives us a context for the rest of the New Testament. So you have in your hands a tool called the Harmony of the Gospels. The Harmony of the Gospels takes Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, and it puts them in chronological order. And then we can compare and contrast, you'll see as we get into the study tonight, some events in Jesus' life just are recorded in one Gospel. But other events are in two Gospels, three Gospels, even four Gospels. And very specifically tonight we're going to ask the question, why why are there four Gospels? And you know, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you know of all the miracles Jesus does, only one is recorded in all four of the Gospels? Think about that. So we're going we're gonna to get started in that in, in just a minute. Uh, but we're going to deal with the life of Christ, hopefully, in a way that puts together the Jewish background. If you'll hang in there a couple of weeks, we're going to do the walk through the life of Christ. We're going to put the map on the floor the way we did with the Old Testament uh, last year. And I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. Again, I'm really blessed to... To be able to, to get to do this, I'm thankful to TBA Church for having me and thankful to you for being here and giving up your Sunday nights. Those of you who can't make it every week, we're going to put it on the church website, tbachurch.com. We're also going to put it on our website, which is 7117.org, uh, 71-17.org. Okay, that's the name of the ministry that Gwen and I uh, work under. So here we are to study the life of Christ, and hopefully today we're going to answer the question, why? are there four Gospels? By the way, what are the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Say that with me. Go, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know, I have four sons. Their names are Matthew, Mark, Luke. No, they're not really, but I do have a Matthew and a Jonathan. And uh, you have a handout that looks like this that asks the question, why are there four Gospels? Why didn't God just give us one book and call it the life of Jesus and put everything in order? If you look at your harmony, the very back of the harmony, I think there are 208 events in the harmony that talk about the Gospels. Those little squiggly lines at the top of the harmony are paragraphs. And so I'll talk as we go through the life of Christ about turn to paragraph 1 or turn to paragraph 21 or turn to paragraph 63, and we're going to put these paragraphs in order because that's the way we think. But at the time the Gospels were written, uh, there are different reasons and different ways that people think. And so we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew. Anybody named Matthew here tonight? Good. What does Matthew mean? Do you know? Gift of God. And what is the origin of that name? It's a Hebrew name. Okay? I have a son, Matthew, and it means gift of God. It comes from the Hebrew word matan, to give, and God gives. And Matthew is writing to the Jewish people. Now, 
uh, Jesus very clearly is Jewish in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 says, This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Matthew is writing to the Jews, and they're interested in, is Jesus related to David? We'll, we'll see why tonight. And is, is he related to Abraham? Because if he's not related to Abraham, he's not Jewish, and he's not going to be our Messiah, or not going to be qualified to be our Messiah. So the very first out-of-the-blocks verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, this is the genealogy, or the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. That's kind of a cartoon representative of the Jewish man. The Jewish man, what's he carrying? He's carrying the law. The Jews were interested in the law. There are 613 laws in the Old Testament. And Matthew assumes that you know all 613 of them. They had great debates. Which came first? What is the greatest commandment? Have you heard that question asked? If you're Jewish, that's a very important dialogue. They're interested in the sacrificial system over there on the right-hand side of the screen. And again, Matthew is writing to the Jews to show Jesus as their king is going to offer a perfect sacrifice. The problem in Israel at the time of Christ is this guy over here, the tax collector. And he didn't work for Israel, he worked for Rome. And Israel is under the domination of Rome at the time of Christ, and so you have the, the, the struggle between the zealots and the assassins who want to free Israel and the tax collectors who want to uh, stick it to Israel because they work for the Romans. The temple is central to the book of Matthew, and there's a picture of the temple. So Matthew writes to what kind of people? And he says, hey, I have found our king. That's important. And the words in the book of Matthew over and over again are, this is fulfilled by the scripture, bang, and he quotes the Old Testament. He assumes that you know the Old Testament. He also is not writing in chronological order. You're going to find a couple of things in chronological order in the Gospel of Matthew, and then all of a sudden, boom, you get the Sermon on the Mount. Have you heard of the Sermon on the Mount? Well, chronologically, that takes place well into the life of Christ, but it's early in Matthew, chapters 5 and 6 and 7. You also have in Matthew the discourse called the Olivet Discourse, which talks about his second coming. And again, if the king is here, we want to know what he has to say about these things. So the emphasis in Matthew's gospel is on, on the kingship of Christ. And here's the last phrase that's important in the gospel of Matthew, the great commission phrase, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus gathers his disciples together and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. See, that's, that's a king talking. I have all the authority to do this. I've got something for you to do. Go. And if you're a Jewish person and Jesus Messiah is your king, you're going to be involved in going into all the world and preaching the gospel. Now, we all need to do that. But if you have a friend who is Jewish by background and they want to know about Jesus, what gospel should they probably read? They should probably read Matthew's gospel. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look uh, at, the, at the Gospels together. And when you study the Gospels together, Matthew writes to what people? The Jews. He says, I found our what? King. Say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew writes to the? He says, Jesus is our King. Now the next Gospel is Mark. Anybody here named Mark? Anybody know what Mark means? We don't know what Mark means. But we do know what nationality Mark is. Have you heard of Mark Antony? And Cleopatra, he's a Roman, okay? And the Romans are interested in knowing about Jesus at the time that Christ is born, but the Romans didn't need a king. They had this guy named what? Caesar. But the Romans were very interested in a lot of other stuff. How strong were you? Roman, Rome was known for their domination. There's the Roman soldier. 
Uh, they were great builders. In fact, at the time of Jesus, before he was born, a guy by the name of Herod the Great built buildings and roads, some of which you can see 2,000 years later today. I've walked on the roads of the Romans. They had to build roads to get their troops from one end of the empire to the other. And so the Romans were interested in domination. They had slaves do a lot of their work. They were severe and harsh rulers. And so Mark comes along and he writes to the Romans. He's not interested in showing that Jesus is their king. He's interested in what they're interested. He's interested in showing that Jesus is the perfect servant. Mark 10.45 says what? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Mark is writing to the Romans. He says, I found the perfect what? Servant. Everybody in Mark's world knew about servanthood because everybody had to serve the authority in their life all the way up to and including Caesar. You with me? So the, the Mark gospel doesn't have a genealogy in it. You don't really care who the servant is related to. You want to know how well does he do the job and how quickly can he have it finished. So in Mark's gospel, the key word becomes the word immediately. You know, Mark's only 16 chapters long, but 32 times in those 16 chapters, Jesus will do something when? Immediately, because he's a servant. There's a need, and, and many of the miracles of Christ are just bang, 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 rushed through in the gospel of Mark. There's a person who's sick, and Jesus immediately goes and he meets the need. There's a person who's uh, paralyzed, and immediately go, he goes and heals that situation. There's someone who's dying, and immediately he goes, and he, the key word is what? Immediately. Because Mark writes to the what? Romans. And he says, Jesus is the perfect servant. Matthew writes to the Jews. He says, I found our king. Mark writes to the Romans. He said, I found the perfect servant. Luke is the easiest gospel for most Americans to understand. That's because Luke tells us exactly why he writes. And boy, I like Luke. In chapter 1 of Luke's gospel, he said, It seemed good to me as well because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is very clear. He's going to write down everything in order. Matthew doesn't do that. Mark does it to a, to a greater degree. But Luke very specifically spells things out in order. When you have a conflict in the chronology between two Gospels, go with Luke. Because he's saying from the get-go, I'm writing in chronological order. And he writes to Theophilus. Say Theophilus. Who is Theophilus? I don't know either. Theophilus might have been a real person, might have been somebody who ruled in the Roman world with a Greek name, but the word Theophilus means lover of God. Theos is God and Philos is love. So anybody by way of application who loves God will be blessed by reading Luke's gospel. And here are the Greeks. You know, we know some things about the Greeks. They loved to party, but they were torn between, you know, Epicureanism and Stoicism. You know, they got... They got eat, drink, and be merry on one hand, and they got the Stoics training for the Olympics on the other. That's the Greek mind. The Greeks were interested in creating the perfect man. Even their sculptures, their gods and goddesses, were really just souped-up human beings. And so Luke says, hey, I found the perfect man. It's Jesus, the Messiah of Israel. Now, in the Greek world, a man was strong enough to compete in the Olympics but he's competing in front of a woman. And in the Greek world, you were only a man if you not only had the type A personality and you were doing stuff, but also if you were kind to women and children. And so guess which gospel has all the women and children in it? 
You know, if you're looking for Mary and Martha, take a guess. Go to Luke, you see. Because Jesus is tender and kind there with, when he says, come let the little children come to me. That's, that's a Greek thing. And so Luke gives us an in-order gospel. He writes to what people? The Greeks, he says, Jesus is the perfect man. So we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and who's left? John. John is a Hebrew name, but John is very clear why he writes. His is the last gospel written near the end of the first century. And John looks back at what he knows about Jesus, and he picks seven miracles. He calls them the sign miracles. And verse, 20, uh, verse 31 of John 20 says, But these, these, parentheses, these seven miracles are recorded so that you may what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. So John is very clear why he writes. He's writing an apologetic. An apologetic doesn't mean I apologize for this. It means I'm defending something. And John is defending the deity of Christ. And so he takes these seven miracles. By the way, seven is the perfect number in most of the ancient cultures. Jesus made water into wine. That's a miracle of creation. He healed the nobleman's son. That's a miracle of raising someone from the dead. He healed, let's see, he walked on the water. That's a big creation miracle. Turned the water into wine. He fed 5,000. That's the one miracle that we have in, in John 6. Uh, he the man who was blind, John 9. You know, again, Jesus shows up in John 9. He says, I am the light of the world. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't mean much to us because most of us are Gentiles. But if you're a Jew, you know exactly what that means. Okay? The old man's son walked on the water, turned the water into wine, fed the 5,000, healed the man who was blind, helped the man by the pool who was crippled. We wrote a song about this years ago. And before he was done, he raised up Lazarus in chapter 11 and the nobleman's son back in chapter 4. So these seven signs, if you believe them, you've got to believe that Jesus is somebody. He says he's God all the way through the book. And so John writes to the whole world, and he says, Jesus is who? The Son of God. So go back to that page, if you would, at the beginning that we gave you, that worksheet page, and let's just talk through that briefly. And uh, we have the four gospel accounts there, and I think there's a place for you to write in there. Uh, some of you have already been disobedient and written it down there. So if the person next to you has done that, reach over and give them an F on their paper, because you're going to be graded on this. Just kidding. Matthew is writing to the Jews to show Jesus is their what? King. The key verse in Matthew's gospel is what? Matthew, I'm sorry, the key word is he's fulfilled the scriptures. And you find the, the outstanding feature in the book are uh, sermons. It's ranged topically, not chronologically. The focus in Matthew's gospel is on look at the past. Okay. Whereas in Mark's gospel, it's what are you going to do for me today in the present? And Luke's gospel is I'll do it tomorrow in the future. See, And then John's interested in eternity. The personality uh, emphasized there, John, uh, Matthew is a book of emotion. Mark is a book about the will. Luke is about the mind. That's the Greeks were all about developing the mind. And John is about your spiritual dimension. Religion is the activity in the book of Matthew. Construction is the book of Mark. Education is the book of Luke. And in John, we have the revelation of God from heaven now come to live with us. In Matthew, you have many of the commands of Jesus. In Mark, you have the authority of Caesar. In Luke, you have the culture which rules the show. And in John, he's all about Jesus is the Christ. The goal in Matthew's gospel is to overcome the tradition of the Jews, 
In Mark, overcome the domination of the Romans. In Luke, overcome the sophistication of the Greek. And in John, the evangelization of the world. So on that, on that page, you've got a whole quick summary of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Say Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Don't look at your page. Look here. Matthew writes to the... Says, I found our what? Mark writes to the... Romans says, I found the perfect... Uh, Luke writes to what? The Greeks. He says, I found the perfect... And John writes to the whole world. I said, he said, I found the Son of God. When I say go, I want you to get with a person other than the person you came with, okay? And I want you each teach each other just those two things. Who they write to, okay, and why did they write? On the count of three. One, two, three, go. If you're doing this on audio, it would be a good thing to turn off the source of your audio and do that as well. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. How many Gospels are there in the New Testament? What are they? Matthew writes to which group of people? The Jews. Says Jesus is our what? Mark writes to the... Says I found the perfect. Luke writes to the... Says I found the perfect. And John writes to the whole. And says Jesus is the Son of God. So that if you have a friend who is Jewish, as I said earlier, and they want to know about Jesus, what Gospel should they read? If you want to learn how to be a better servant, what gospel should you read? If you want to know chronologically everything Jesus did, what gospel should you read? And if you have a friend who's not a believer in Jesus, what gospel should they read? John, because John's writing to the whole world to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. Good. Have a seat. Any questions on those four gospels before we jump into some other material? You're doing great. I think at the time of Christ, you had the Roman domination politically but you had the Greek domination culturally and then Jesus shows up and is a Jew so we have those three mindsets that need to hear about Jesus and that's why we have four Gospels everybody else who's left needs the book of John okay now let's see if we can't put this together a little bit take out your harmony and let's go to paragraph one that's that squiggly blue line those of you that don't have the harmony I'm talking about I'll mention the scriptures as we go but you may also be wanting to buy a harmony. The one I've taken these chapter divisions from are from a harmony by J. Dwight Pentecost called The Words and Works of Jesus Christ. And so on the top of your harmony, after you get through that really tiny font that anybody who's over the age of 50 shouldn't be able to read, that's the table of contents. You'll have to get a magnifier for that. But on the next page, you're going to see John, I mean, introduction A, the source of knowledge, Luke 1.1. 1, 1. It says, now many have undertaken, and we've read this, to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, like the accounts passed on to us by those who were eyewitnesses and servants of the word from the beginning. See, Luke was a doctor. But like a lot of my doctor friends, he only practiced medicine to pay the bills. Luke was really a historian. And Luke did due diligence. He took time to put together the fragmentary accounts that were around at the time of Christ. And he clearly spends a lot of time with Mary, the mother of Jesus, because all of the details about the birth narrative come in Luke's gospel. We're going to see that next week. And then verse 3 of Luke 1, it says, So it seemed good to me as well, because I have followed all things carefully from the beginning to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And here's why. Underline this so that you may know for certain the things you were taught. See, that's, that's the bottom line. I'm writing it down in consecutive order to prove what you have been taught, most excellent Theophilus. 
Again, we're not sure who Theophilus was. Might have been a real person. Might have been a symbolic way of saying anybody who loves, loves God. And so that's the beginning of the life of Christ. Now the next paragraph, paragraph 2, we go to John's Gospel. And this is why this tool is so helpful. John is what kind of nationality? He's a Jew, okay? But he writes to the whole world. Matthew has a genealogy, and in Matthew's genealogy, he goes back to David and Abraham. Okay? Mark has no genealogy. Luke has a genealogy. We're going to see it in a little bit, but Luke's genealogy goes all the way back to Adam because Luke is showing that Jesus is the perfect what? Man. John has no genealogy because if Jesus is God, God has no genealogy. How old is God? He was there in the beginning. And he takes the creation account in Genesis 1 and he quotes that, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. The Word was with God in the beginning. So here in John's Gospel, at the very beginning, he assumes God. He doesn't try to prove God, but he's saying there's something different from just God the Father. There's the preexistence of the Word, there's the distinctness of the Word, and then there's the equality of the Word with God. And then verse 3, what did the Word do? All things were created by him, And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So apparently, back in eternity past, as God was creating the universe, God the Father was speaking it into existence, but God the Son was the creative agent in the very beginning of time. That's the Word. Now, let me talk to you about the Word. In Greek, the word for word is up there. It's the word logos. Say logos. And to the Greek mind, the word meant the expression of the thought of something. If you think of something and you want to tell me about it, you have to explain it with words. Okay. But in Hebrew, and, and actually at the time of Jesus, the, the, the nation of Israel spoke Aramaic. Say Aramaic. There's a different idea of the word. It's called the memra. Say memra. And I love this word. It's so cool when you start to see all this unpacked. The Memra did some pretty cool stuff. Genesis 15.1. Let me show you something that the Memra did. It's, Genesis 15 is the Abrahamic covenant being ratified. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham some things, but in Genesis 15, God ratified the covenant by sacrificing animals. And in Genesis 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. See, the word is now going to make the covenant with Abram, who later is called Abraham. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield and the one who will reward you in great abundance. And I think that's the Memra. The Memra that John is referring to has the ability to make covenants. It's more than just an idea. It's the creator and it's the maker of covenants. And then you go to a verse like Psalm 33, verse 6, which references what happened in the beginning in John's Gospel. And it says, By the word of the Lord, what? The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. That's the Memra in Aramaic. So the Genesis 15 Memra is the covenant maker, and the Psalm 33, 6 Memra is the creator. It goes along with Colossians 1, 16. It says all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. And then you go to 
Isaiah 40, it says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, the Memrah, lasts how long? Forever. So the word is eternal. And again, we build the case of, of what this Memrah is. Isaiah 55, so, my word which, uh, so shall my word which goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. And so when the word shows up, it has an effect. And that's what John is trying to get across to us. When Jesus shows up, he's eternal, he's the creator, he's the covenant maker, and he has an effect. And then you go to the book of uh, Ezekiel 1.3, and throughout many of the later Old Testament books, it will say the word of the Lord came to the prophet, this, in this case Ezekiel. It also came to Haggai and to Zechariah and to Malachi, who is the Italian prophet, or some of us say Malachi. Okay. It's the word, the Memrah, who empowers the prophets to do their job. See, it's a really cool deal. So go back now to John's Gospel in your harmony. It says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Make sense now? This is a Jew writing this. A Hebrew writes this. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God, fully. The Word was in the beginning with God, and all things were created by Him. Now, John continues to expand his idea of the Memrah. In Him was life, and the life was the what? Underline that, light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered us. So God sends Jesus into the world as the creative agent who has an effect, but he's the light. He's the light of the world. See, again, if you're Jewish and Jesus shows up and says, I'm the light of the world, you get this. Now, here's what's cool. A man came, sent from God, whose name was what? John. Not John, the gospel writer that we're reading now, but this is John the Baptist. We'll learn more about him tonight. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that everyone might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. Why is that necessary? Because if you are blind, you cannot see the light. See, if we turn out all the lights in here, okay, but I just light up my little cell phone up here in the corner. You can see the light, unless you're blind. And then you need somebody to tell you, oh, Ed's got his cell phone on. It's up in the right front corner of the room. You with me? So that's the purpose of John the Baptist, to say to people, hey, the light is here. There are no excuses here. Jesus is the light. If you don't see the light, listen to what John says about Jesus. He himself, verse 8, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created by him, but the world did not, what, recognize him. He came to what was his own, but his own people did not receive him. And there you have the, the whole message of Christ in a nutshell. You have the incarnation of Jesus, verse 9. You have the presentation of Jesus, verse 11. You have his rejection in verse 11. And then finally in verse 12, you have the offer of grace. That's ultimately why Christ comes. But to all who have received him, who believe in his name, to them he has given the right to become God's children. Children not born by human parents or by human desire or by a husband's decision, but by God. You see, it's not about physical desire 
or sexual desire or human purpose, but you become a child of God because God says, hey, if you receive Jesus, you have a new right here. So if you're going to study the life of God's son, you need to be God's son or God's daughter. And how do you get to be God's son or God's daughter? You receive the one who is the life. There's a great picture of this verse in Revelation 3 and verse 20. But before I get there, let me just finish this paragraph. Verse 14 of John 1 says, Now the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. That's what Jesus did. He showed up from heaven. And the, the Hebrew word there, he, sh- he shekined among us. It's the Greek word for tabernacled. When the Jews in the Old Testament wanted to have God in their midst, he had to build a building for God lived in the tent. It was a tabernacle. And so Jesus shows up, became flesh, and tabernacled among us. We saw his glory. That's the Shekinah glory. The glory of the one one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. John testified and shouted out. That was John's ministry. This one was the one about whom I said, He who comes after me is greater than I am because he existed before me. Now we're going to see tonight, John is six months older than Jesus. They're cousins. They cousins. But even though John is older than Jesus, Jesus was before John. For we have all received from his fullness one gracious gift after another, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only one himself, God, who is in the closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. You see, that's why the Word came. The Memrah came to make God known. When you look at Jesus, you see what God is like. But more than that, you only get to see what God is like. You have this great, great opportunity in Christ. This is a quote from the book of Revelation before Jesus' second coming. He makes this invitation. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right. To those who believe in his name, he has given the right to become God's children. You know, the question as we start the life of Christ is a simple one. Are you a child of God? You you become a child of God when you receive Christ. And Jesus shows up and he he knocks at the door. The door is your heart, I think. Notice this door has no knob on the outside. Where's the knob? It's on the inside. And you become a child of God when you say, okay, I believe, Jesus, that you came, that you are God, and that you came for me that you died in my place on the cross. And not only did he die, but he was resurrected. And not only was he resurrected, but he's coming back again. And so hopefully we'll begin to put all this stuff together as we walk through the life of Christ together. Any questions on this before we take a little breather here? Okay, let me pray for us. Father, thank you that as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, To those he gave the right to be called children of God. And we pray, Father, as we start this study about your son, that you would give us wisdom and understanding about the one who came into the world to be our light. Thank you that Jesus is our light. And we commit the rest of our time tonight to him, and we pray in your name. Amen.